Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. What is a novel for? I'm Constance Grady, and I write about culture for Vox. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Every time that there's something awful and violent and racist in the news, and this is America, so that's kind of a lot, there's this thing that happens. Someone will come to me and ask me to write them a list of novels to read to understand what's just happened. And every time they ask me that, I think, is that really what novels are good for? To show you what I mean, let me talk to you about a novel that I think is really good and that deals with a lot of awful racist stuff. It's called Such a Fun Age, and it's a debut novel by Kylie Reed. The book starts with the kind of story you can imagine showing up on your social media feeds tomorrow. A young black woman named Amira is babysitting a white three-year-old. They go into a grocery store to kill some time. Then the store's security guard accuses Amira of kidnapping the child. Outrage and a potentially incriminating video ensue. But Such a Fun Age isn't really about the racist security guard. It's about all the white people around Amira who want to tell her that they're better than the racist security guard. It's about her white employer and her white boyfriend and all the ways they express their polite liberal racism. That's a very tricky topic to write about. So I was impressed by how much fun it is to read such a fun age. This book is breezy, witty, and biting. It's an issues novel that's never didactic or preachy. If you were to put it on a list of books that will teach you why ex-racist thing just happened, it wouldn't just feel out of place. It would feel like you were willfully missing the point. So when Kylie Reed came by the Vox Book Club to talk about Such a Fun Age, I wanted to ask her about how she created that balance. How does she write a literary novel that is fast-paced and breezy and fun, and that also handles complicated social issues with the care that they demand? And what do we read novels like that for? Last November, I was lucky enough to host a discussion with Kylie Reed for the Vox Book Club. This conversation is from a recording of that live event. Kylie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So, Kylie, let's start with the title, Such a Fun Age. There are so many different layers of meaning to read into that phrase. So what were some of the ideas you wanted to play with when you developed that title? 
Sure. The title was something that I heard very, very often when I was a nanny. And I'll start by saying this is a completely fictional story. This is not me. I don't gravitate towards autofiction at all, though I'm a fan of many who do. But Such a Fun Age was something that I heard very often when I was on a playground or at play dates set up between strangers. And it was someone else saying, oh, how old is she? Oh, 13 months. Yeah, that's such a fun age. Yeah. And it kind of reminded me of strangers talking about the weather or just kind of filling the space to try and make a connection potentially, or just kind of pass the day a little bit. So I loved that it put you in a toddler child space immediately for those who know those worlds pretty well. And second, age plays a big factor in this story. I love when fiction has a clock and Amira has a big clock of turning 26 because her health insurance is pending. And so I was really interested in exploring how Amira feels like she should be having a lot more fun at 25 and she's not having fun. And she's looking at her friends who seem to be having fun, which is more in, you know, a financial status situation. But of course, I mean, having a sturdy financial situation can be very fun as well. And so she's looking at those things and then going out one step further. This is the year before the 2016 election. And I do feel that there is a tendency to romanticize how things were before certain people came into power saying, oh, things are so much worse now when truly that was when Black Lives Matter was making themselves known, but also for domestic workers in particular, they've been fighting for equality for a very long time since the days of slavery and beyond. And so I wanted to zoom out and look at the age in general. So yeah, lots of fun ages in that title. Yes. Definitely. And I think part of the disconnect that you're talking about with the immediately pre-Trump era that this book plays with so well is this sense that like, I think a lot of people sort of felt like, oh, racism's basically solved now. And like there would be these sort of outrageous, very buzzy moments of racial violence and public racism. And that was for a lot of white people and figures in the progressive sphere, kind of a chance to perform their own outrage and their own anti-racism and thus prove even more so that racism was basically fixed now. Which I think the opening incident plays with so well. So let's dive into that a little bit. There's that altercation that Amira has with a grocery store security guard who accuses her of having kidnapped her babysitting charge, Briar. And that really feels of a piece with this national fascination we have had and which was really taking off in that moment in 2015 with these videos of authority figures and police and police stand-ins, since this grocery store security guard is definitely not a cop, but just being sort of casually racist in their daily lives. So why do you think those videos have tended to spread so wildly? And how did you think about Amira's video fitting into that genre? You know, on a very basic level, I think that the videos have started to spread widely because the technology is there, because suddenly it's very, very easy to pull out your phone and take something and put it on a platform and, and share it with everyone. And so this was, I feel, looking back to my own experience, it's like four to five year blitz of racial harm and, and violence and murder captured on cell phones. And then very strangely, they're put on your Twitter feed next to a picture of a cute animal or an invite to an event or something. And, and it was something that a lot of people couldn't ignore in the same way that it may have been possible to ignore before, even with people like Rodney King, these things, it wasn't new, but it felt new in the way that it was so easily attainable, I feel, because of how social media works. But I do think that there's something going on 
with these videos and there's a little bit of a a guilt porn aspect of it a little bit. It's very easy to see this black and white, what I like to call cartoon racism in these videos. Because when you watch them, they are horrendous. And sometimes they make you not able to sleep at night because you're watching someone's loved one come in contact with a very dangerous situation. But it's also very clearly racist in this way where someone can say, I would never do that. I would never say that. I'm not a police officer. I don't even have any police officer friends. So I am so far away from that. I am doing okay. That's over there. I'm over here. We're okay. And there's a few things wrong with that, <laughs> that outlook. One, I think that a lot of these videos often capture a Black person who has had it. That is the day that they are like, no, not today. I'm going to pull out my cell phone and that's it. And they're extremely like vocalized in this way that I'm jealous that I can't reach that level all the time. I would probably be stumbling all over myself but they make it a you know standard of you have to be performing at this level in this situation in order to get out of it. And that's really scary to me. And kudos to anyone who can <laughs> do that in those situations, but I don't think everyone can. Another thing that happens here is that these racist incidents are so black and white that we don't look at much more prevalent instances of racism and, and bodily harm through poverty. Poverty causes so much more bodily harm than police officers do every single day, from health insurance to proper care to not stopping fracking and then harming other communities that are mostly Black. Climate change will affect Black communities first, for sure. And so there's these things with these videos that, on one hand, I'm so grateful that Black people have these services to get justice because that's the only way they can sometimes, which is terrible. On the other end, it makes racism look more like a game of manners and violence in your body and not more in policy where it affects Black people the most. That's a very long answer. (laughs) That That is what we love here. So zooming in a little bit on that question of poverty and, as you were saying earlier, on Amira, who has her ticking clock coming up, I love that so much of her driving motivation is just she wants some health insurance and like a job that will give her health insurance since she is coming up on getting kicked off of her family's policy. So how did you sort of decide on this very common and so scary predicament as being the thing that's pushing her forward through so much of the novel? One is selfishly. Those are my favorite polars in fiction. I love very low to the ground, domestic real life things that people see every day. And you know, every day when you see it, you think that's not that big of a deal. But then when when a book really pulls you in and think, oh man, is she going to get promoted to manager? Oh, this, there's so much writing on this. That's my favorite thing in a novel. So one, I loved the domestic quality of it. But two, I think healthcare is something that for many people around me made them understand like, no, my life actually is very political and I am affected by these things. I think when you're little, especially if you grew up in a, you know, middle high income family, you think politics is over here. I'm over here. I'll care about that when I'm much older, but this really affects Amira on a day-to-day basis. It's also interesting because Amira works very hard. Like I personally think you should be able to work, not work, whatever. And you should be able to go to the doctor and get your arm fixed or whatever it is. But in the case of Amira, she, she has a job but it's not considered a job in in many cases. And she's still fighting to be able just to do something simple, like go to the doctor. Yeah. And it's, it is a very classic, like the personal is political moment, right? Which is the kind of thing that classically feminism has been good at talking about, but our big avatar of mainstream feminism in this book is really having a lot of trouble with that idea. So I want to turn in a little bit to the other protagonist who 
is so compelling and so terrible. First of all, how do you say her name when you're talking about this book? Do you say Alex or Alex? I say Alex and you can say yes. Alex. Everyone can. Thank God. Yes. <laughs> I fully said it in that way in my head while I was reading and I'm sure it would offend her. But she's such an indictment of this sort of corporate lean-in feminism. And I love that she has built her business around basically politely asking for free stuff and getting it. That's basically low-key a scam. And then she turned that into her women's empowerment brand. So how did you think about developing that metaphor of sorts for white feminism and also about making Alex a co-protagonist with Amira rather than a straightforward antagonist? Right. When it came to Alex, what drew me to her was her loneliness in Philadelphia. I liked the idea of this very efficient work associated person who kind of, you know, sees her worth in in what she's doing as far as her work is concerned, being moved to a new place and, and trying to find her footing there. And so Alex, listen, she makes a lot of mistakes and you see her at her worst very, very often. But I, I'm a writer and I feel like there are many writers too who love their characters through all of their mistakes and, and also can find not just empathy, but a connection there. I think we've all stalked an ex-boyfriend with our iPad until our legs get really hot. (laughs) Alex starts looking at her babysitter's cell phone, which is a huge invasion of privacy. But I know, you know, when I'm on the train, if someone's texting next to me, I'm going to look at it. I don't need to know them. I want to know. And I just want to see those things. And I felt like Alex was a great place to exercise those very human, naughty behaviors. Um, That drew me to her, but also Alex is a very polarizing character. And at the same time, listen, I would rather work for her than (laughs) a lot of other people. Here's my deal on that. Alex never messes with Amira's coin. She doesn't. She always pays her on time. And it was very, very straightforward. What comes to haunt Alex later is the fact that she wants to turn their relationship into more of a friendship and, and deepen their relationship that way through very superficial means and make sure that Amira is approving her as a person. And, and that is very wrong. But Alex represents a very popular liberal way of thinking of, you know, I can just be this wonderful person to this individual, then I'm okay. Everything is okay. Everything is fine. But the truth is, if Alex was a perfect employer, a Black woman would still be making significantly less money. Domestic workers would still be fighting for health care. And so she's a little bit stuck. I think Alex gets in trouble when she tries to be a bit of a hero in a way that she can't, unfortunately, do. And, and also, she's just really lonely and wants a friend. Yeah. Yeah. The loneliness is very lovable, even as it's very easy to resent her for everything else she's doing. You can see why there are stories of people getting into physical altercations about whether they hate Alex or not. (laughs) Yes. And it is so striking how much in this novel, Alex is very aware of the racial difference between herself and Amira, but she really only kind of like halfway notices the class difference. And when she does notice it, she generally thinks of it as being something that she is going to sort of mentor Amira past and be like, oh, well, I'll teach you how to write your resume correctly and Mm -hmm. about wine and you can become a little mini me and it'll be fine. So why do you think she has so much trouble making those connections in her head? That's a great question. Yes. Alex, in my opinion, does not have an issue connecting with a person from a different race. I think Alex struggles a lot to connect with someone who's in a different class 
background and different class solidarity. And she kind of freaks out a little bit when she sees certain things that she would never buy or decisions that she would never do. And also decisions that she wouldn't want her child doing. This very rarely happens, but there was a review that came out from Nyella Orr, fantastic writer in the London Review of Books. And she pointed out that Alex has made her job around crafting a story and she understands that your story is more important than what you actually do. And Amira is trying to stay away from story in every way. She doesn't want to be online. She wants to kind of erase this period in her life until she figures out what she wants to do. So they're coming from very, very different places. And so Alex, I think she feels like the way that she can best help Amira is give her the opportunities that she would have wanted someone to give her. But I also think there's a little bit of, I mean, I wish there was a word for this. I don't know if you have family members who, you know, they give you gifts and it's nothing you want, but it was really fun for them to give you. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've experienced that. Yes. <laughs> and they're like, because you love doing this thing. So I painted you this thing because I love to paint. And so here, and it's like, well, I think this was more of a gift for you <laughs> than it was for me. And that's fine. And I think that's a little bit of what Alex is doing here. She likes to work. She likes a project. And I think she's not the first to objectify a Black woman and see them as something to be better. Such a fun age is doing a lot with race, but it's also interested in class, too. When we come back from a short break, I'll ask novelist Kylie Reed, what happens when we try to pretend that class doesn't exist. It's also interesting that both Alex and Amira are sort of leaving their their family class backgrounds, right? Amira is the first in her family to go to college. Her family is mostly creative people who work with their hands. And then Alex's family was essentially middle class. And then they came into wealth and became what she now thinks of as being sort of tacky, nouveau riche. So how do you think about developing this parallel between the two of them? And how do you see it playing out in terms of how difficult, especially Alex, finds it to communicate across class barriers with each other? That's a great question. I really, I find that I write about characters coming to a place and not being from that place often. And Philadelphia was kind of where I centered where both these characters come from and how different their class backgrounds affect how they see Philadelphia. So Alex has moved out of her nouveau riche house. She's solidified herself as a minimalist, you know, aesthetic, nice, rich person in, in New York City, whether she considers herself that or not. And now she's going to Philadelphia, which she feels is like a dirty little sister of New York City. And so she sees it a little bit differently. I'm here now. I can tell you it's not. Philadelphia is wonderful. And I grew up in Philly. Respect. I, we all respect it. It's, it's the best. I never want to leave. And so Amira came from a smaller town and she sees Philadelphia as the big city and she really loves it. And she sees that as like the place where she kind of became an adult. I think it's a bit too simple to say, oh, Alex grew up rich. That's mm-hmm. not it at all. I think her relationship to money changed very much as she grew up. And a lot of the things that she learned about money were more centered around manners and Mm. showiness and gaudiness. And I think that that's also how she kind of views racism in Mm. these very big flashy terms that are very easy to stuff 
under the rug, but actually don't really say anything about who you are as a person. And Amira, money runs her life still. She's trying to make it in Philadelphia as an adult, and she wants to do the things that her friends do. And she has a very different relationship to money than Alex does because Alex and her friends kind of don't have to worry about those things. They can do all the same things and hang out all the same places. But Amira feels like this is the thing keeping me from my full adult self in the future. Mm. I want to ask a little bit about Kelly, who is Amira's boyfriend and Alex's ex-boyfriend. And he's such this interesting figure in this book because he stays really opaque. He's not a point of view character the way that Alex and Amira are. And it's almost like this mystery we're invited to solve of like, oh, is Kelly secretly kind of racist? And that's not something that the book necessarily offers a straightforward answer on ever. So how did you think about playing with that question and with the opacity of that character as the book goes on? For Kelly, it was most important that the reader is dating him with Amira. Mm. And those early dating periods are full of those, ooh, what are you... Could I deal with that? Okay. Mm. Well, that well, that was cute. Well, he shouldn't have said that. All of those moments, and I really wanted to keep that at the forefront for Amira. I think what's also important about Kelly is, you know, Amira's not trying to get married. She he kind of surprised her a little bit, and she thinks this is fine for right now, which is kind of what she's doing with a lot of other parts in her life. Of my apartment's fine for right now, my job is fine for right now. I'll find something else later when something presents itself to me, um, which is definitely how a lot of people live their lives. That's how I was for a very long time as well. With Kelly, I wanted him to be fully himself and not, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of people assume that Kelly wants to be Black because he's around so much Black culture, but that is very much not who he is. He is a white Mm. person who has found himself amidst a lot of Black culture because of his interests, because of his friends. And I think that that's a big part of white supremacy, which is appreciating Black culture, but also wanting to reap the benefits of, of living a white life in a very separate way. And so Kelly likes Sabira. He thinks she's great. They have a great sexual chemistry. She thinks he's funny. So I wanted to stay in that gray area because I appreciate when one, a writer doesn't tell me who's good, who's bad, all of those things. But two, I think that there's a sad and strange possibility that if they had met at a different time, things could have gone very differently. Mm. And someone who has a penchant for Black women, whether that is lifting them up or not, it's, I can't, I don't know what's going on in people's head. That doesn't mean that he couldn't enter into a relationship that was serving that person, but Amira has to figure out if that's it for her right now. Definitely. And I want to turn a little bit more into this question about ambiguity and not telling the reader what the deal is. One of the things that's really impressive in this novel is how It's able to be really playful while also handling all of these very difficult subjects and questions super carefully and with a lot of nuance. There's this sort of deceptive amount of breeziness and propulsiveness. So you're kind of rushing through the story and then you only realize like a beat later how heavy all of this material is. So how did you think about sort of developing and maintaining that voice? A few things. So... I'm a really big sucker for plot. And I feel that our brains like watching that natural arc that you Mm. learn about in high school. And so plot is very, very important to me. 
probably much more important than the issues that I'm covering. Um, I stole this from someone. I don't know who I stole it from, but I like to pretend stories are a triangle. Just pretend it's a triangle Mm. and it's divided into three sections. And the bottom section is people. And that's where your base is. And it's characters that are real. It's not stereotypes of people. It's real people with real problems. The second little middle section of the triangle is conflict. And that's what's going on. Tayari Jones said this, and it really stuck with me. You want to write about people's problems and not problems people. Mm. So you're not just going to go say, I'm going to write about poverty. So I'm going to, what does a poor person look like? (laughs) You can't do that. You have to get obsessed with one person who's different from everyone else. And the teeny tiny triangle at the top is symbolism and key themes. I feel very strongly that if you start from the bottom, that it's going to tip over and fall Mm. over. It has to be with the characters. You have to be obsessed with them and their lives and their conflict. And so plot was very important to me, more important than these themes. I never set out to say, I'm going to make race really light for people. I'm going to make these themes digestible. I don't really believe in doing that. I believe in just showing the truth of who these people are and what these themes are in fiction. And so Perhaps it's the fact that I love a really gripping page turning plot that made those themes a little bit more accessible and the read go by a little bit quicker. But the thing is, I'm also, you know, I'm not a nonfiction writer. And so I love a lot of dialogue and that really pulls you through. I think it's all of those themes that I gravitate towards that may have made these themes kind of sneak up on you. Totally. And I think it's a tricky position for a lot of books that engage with race to be in because. This book, as you say, is not didactic. It is not interested in telling me like, oh, I'm going to teach you a valuable lesson about how people think about race and class. Like that's not really the project here. But there's that recurring conversation that often happens when there's something awful and racist in the news and there will be this sort of response from a lot of figures who will say, oh, well, one small thing that a white person can do to push back against this awful racist thing is to read a book by an author of color and learn about racism that way and form an anti-racist book club. So how do you handle this idea that keeps coming up and leading to, you know, great books like this ending up in like very, very well-meaning book Mm -hmm. clubs that are interested in using it as a sort of message? Yeah. Oh, girl, you're going to get me in trouble. (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) All right. You know, as a writer, as an artist, you do not get to choose how people come to your art. You just have to choose, and that's what makes it art. So if some poor person dies very, very publicly on the news and in his hometown, and that's what brings people to your book, that is what brought them there. And it is not up to me to judge what brought them there. Mm -hmm. That being said, you cannot fix racism or inequality with consumption. You Mm -hmm. cannot do it especially when, you know, there's 10 Black authors who have their books out and their books keep getting passed around. It's just kind of <laughs> passing this capital around between people who are not, you know, redistributing it. You're not redistributing any power. You're not changing any systems. You're not doing my least favorite word, disrupting anything mm-hmm. by reading and enjoying a book by a person of color. You're also kind of layering the author with the job of teacher mm-hmm. and saying, make me better, give me great topics, teach me this. 
I've had some readers say, I really wanted you to go into these topics more. And it's like, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an ecologist. That's not my job. Um, I'm a fiction writer and you should just be turning pages <laughs> with me and not really writing anything down. I've also had people say, oh my gosh, I, I wrote this quote down from Tamara. She's so great. And I'm like, oh girl, <laughs> I don't know if you want to write anything down from Tamara just because there's a black person in this book doesn't mean that they're your teacher either. And so books and art about bringing people together, it's about reading a book with your friend about meeting together and discussing things and fighting with each other. That is my favorite thing that has come out of, of being able to be a writer is people discussing your work. But as a human being, I, I do not suggest <laughs> using buying books from people of color as a way to cure racism, because unfortunately that will not do it. I would start with health insurance. I would vote for people who believe everyone should go to the doctor. That's what I would say. Definitely. And I think, mm, I think a question a lot of people end up stumbling on because the conversation about art can be so impoverished in the way we deal with it in this country is like, okay, but then what is this book for if it is not to teach me something? Like, why does literary fiction exist? So I guess I'm wondering if you have an idea that you would propose to people in that situation of like what books do and what novels and literary fiction do since they are not here to teach, what are they here for? Right. Yes. <laughs> it's not my favorite stuff to talk about. Yes. All right. So one thing that I really realized through this book is that everyone picks up a novel wanting something different. And I don't think that that's a wrong thing. Some people think that the job of a novel is escapism. Take me somewhere else. Tell me what it looks like. I want to forget about my life. I want to go to a different world. Tell me what everyone's doing. That's what I really want. Some people want a novel to kind of work with what they already know. And so if it's like, more of a mystery. It's like, give me clues that help me mm. go there a little bit, take me on a journey where I can use my brain and use these patterns to find something. For me personally, and what I think that the best literary fiction does is explore human behavior and reveal truths about human beings that are sometimes uncomfortable, sometimes lovely, sometimes really wonderful, and sometimes really confusing. I believe literary fiction is working when either the prose, the characters, or the story make me see something differently that I've never seen before, make me feel embarrassed because I've done that thing that that mm. character has done, or make me think back to a time that I almost forgot about because they reminded me of something so perfectly. I think the job of literary fiction is to capture life as it is through the opinion of the author that's also reflecting how it happens in real life. And so, of course, you can learn things from novels all the time. I just learned something from one of my students' work that the term, um, what is that term? Um, shotgun was invented by Wells Fargo. I had no idea. <laughs> that's what he told me. So, of course, you can learn things from fiction. But I honestly think that you are opening up your brain and heart and body more to acquiring more when you go in saying, let me see how this book works on me mm. and just let it sit for a little bit. There's so many books that have really sat with me and I like them more as time goes on. And I think that's a sign of a great book. I'm curious as a reader, what you go into a book for. Oh, well, I like to let the book try and teach me what it's doing. I think whenever I'm like reading as a critic, I always try to not come in and be like, well, this is what I think this book should be doing because that's mean and it's not really serving the author, I don't think, either, or like treating the book as respectfully as I want to. And I do like it best when I come to a book and it's not like, here is how you should see the world and <laughs> here is a valuable lesson for you because I'm not a child anymore and I... <laughs> 
I feel yeah. like I don't need a book to tell me those exactly. things. I have to say, even when I was a nanny, there were a few children's books that even stick with me now. Mm -hmm. One of them was called Olive and the Pool. And it was literally just like a weird indie story about a little girl named Olive who has a great day at the pool. There was no lesson. There was nothing special. And it just like really stuck with me. And the little girl I was babysitting was like, read it again. It was like a very strange Herzog, like day in the life. Little tone poem. I'm, yeah. kind of, I'm very into that, actually. Yeah, yeah, I need more of those, for sure. Do you remember in 2014 when everyone was obsessed with girl squads? And people were always talking about whether it was feminist for a group of high-achieving women to be friends with one another? Kylie Reid takes on the girl squad of all girl squads in such a fun age, but how did she do it? That and other questions from the audience of this Box Book Club event are coming up after one last quick break. Okay, we have a question from Cassandra. And Zoe is asking something similar. They would both like to know more about how you build out the friend groups for Alex and Amira, because those friendships were very playful and very different from other relationships. And the roles they played in each woman's life, Cassandra says, were my favorite part of the book. That's great. Yes. So for this book, I wanted to do teeny tiny bending of types that we've seen, archetypes that we've seen before. And so for each group, they have kind of mirroring pairs with each friend group. So there's Amira and, and Alex. There's the momish friend, which is Shawnee and Jody. There's the kind of tell it like it is friend, which is Rachel and Josefa. And then I wanted to play with Tamara, the magical Negro figure. And then with Sarah, the very popular TV sassy Black friend type that you see all the time. And so I wanted to do a lot of things with the friend groups. I I'm very fascinated by how money kind of keeps friends together and how it kind of tears them apart sometimes. I'm very intrigued by how university settings often make it seem like everyone is the same because you're all living in the same dorm or you're living in the same apartment. And of course, it's like, oh, someone's dad has a lot of money, but like we're all eating at the same things. And then suddenly when you get out of school, the approbability of certain people seems very apparent in ways that I know for me were shocking. I always felt very strange when I was 24, 25 and friends started getting married and I was so excited. And then I realized how much it costs to go to a wedding. And I was like, wait a second, how is everyone doing? We're just doing this. We're just buying tickets and going, we're just doing this. Okay. And it was really shocking to me to understand that friends had upper mobility that I did not know they had that I feel like I was supposed to have. And so I really wanted to play with that with Amira. I also wanted to play with what they can do for each other as friend groups. So Alex and her friends can help each other, you know, jump on a campaign or find a new doctor or help each other with their books. They can do very big things to help move each other forward, which is kind of how a lot of, uh, you know, premises of feminism work, which is let's take my friends and move us up. We're doing a feminism by making sure we all go up. They're um, all women. So. They're all women. So it's feminism. Totally fine. <laughs> exactly. And Amira and her friends are at a very different spot. They can, you know, cover a drink, but, but that's kind of it. And Amira is feeling like 
she might lose her friends if she can't participate in the same activities as they can. And so I wanted to do a lot with money with the friendships and be really honest about how money affects friendships. But I also just wanted these women to really naturally gravitate towards each other and have fun. And I wanted to be clear why they're friends with each other. And I wanted them to be extremely loyal, wonderful friends who give terrible advice, because I think that's very common. And Malcolm is asking about the process of characterizing the child character, Briar. She had such specific and engaging dialogue that felt authentic, and it was cute without being cutesy. So he was wondering how you went into that. Sure. I hate cutesy. I hate mm. cutesy. So I'm glad about that. I, I'm sure you've seen so many children in literature used as a little set piece to reveal a plot point, to say the perfect thing, to be incredibly precious and precocious and angelic. And precocious children, particularly in movies, I can barely watch it. I, I have to like turn away. <laughs> I can't understand I can't understand a child acting like that. When I was a nanny, I really came to understand how serious children were, even when they were two and three years old and how mature their thoughts were, even though they were still coming in contact with the world for the very first time. And so I wanted Briar to be very real and very odd and charming, but also a little bit panicky as she tries to understand what's happening around her. And so a lot of it was writing down things that I'd heard from children I babysat for. I did a lot of interviews for this book. I interviewed a lot of mothers as well. And so just really making sure that I get her voice perfectly. Yeah. Katarina says, I'm curious to hear more about, is it Tamara or Tamara? Tamara. Tamara. Is she kind of stuck in a no-win situation? Is there any way for her to not end up as a bad guy, given the tension between fitting into her upper middle-class world and not being an a quote, Uncle Tom betraying her race? Ooh, what a great question. Well, here's the thing. I mean, who's in a worse situation, Amira or Tamara? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because Amira's never going to live in a house like Tamara does. She's never going to have the mobility she does. And so in many ways, homegirl is winning. <laughs> so at the same time, you know, I think that a lot like Alex, for certain characters, you're only seeing them in moments that they later may not be proud of. You know, Tamara, I'm sure she has wonderful attributes. And I feel like if she met a version of Amira who was maybe going to grad school, she would be so, so helpful and wonderful and listen to her and, and really further someone's career. And so Tamara can be charming and poised and smart and all of those good things. I think that she has a really rough moment with Amira at the Thanksgiving table. And who knows? I mean, people might look back saying, I messed up. I should have listened to her. I'm kind of embarrassed about how I feel or she might not feel that way. But yeah, we're only seeing these characters for about four months. I think they have total capacity to get better and worse outside of it. Relatedly, Sally is asking, I'm curious if you think of Amira and Alex and others from time to time, especially during this upside down time of ours. If so, how are they doing? Okay. Yes. I've thought of Amira in strange ways during the pandemic as so many domestic care workers have lost their jobs. And I can't help but think, you know, if Amira was babysitting, what would happen to her then? Where would she be forced into? If Alex would say, hey, we can pay for you for two months, but then we kind of got to move on or how that would look. A lot of daycares around my area have shut down recently as well. And so it's just a very difficult time for child caregivers. And so I'm very, very curious. And so I've definitely thought about them with that. And for Alex, have I thought of Alex? Uh, we just moved into a house and I'm redecorating. And I've thought about <laughs> how Alex would decorate because I like to keep it pretty simple too. So yeah, they crossed my mind for sure. 
Um, we have a few different people asking what you're working on next and if they can look forward to any new projects from you. Sure. I am working on novel two right now, which I will say very little about. I'll say that it's based somewhere much warmer, but I don't think I'll ever write anything that doesn't have lots of very awkward class dynamics, issues of money as well, and, and those kind of conversations that make you want to kind of crawl under something a little bit. And so that is the current project. And yeah, that's taken a minute. So yeah, give me a little bit, but that'll turn out something good. Yeah. Okay. Martin is asking, I was very interested in how Amira had to deal with the pressure to advance her career, even though she was comfortable in the tasks in her various job throughout the book. Yes. This is something that I'm very, very intrigued in. I, this is something else I'll probably be writing about too. And my second novel is those jobs that people say, oh, but you're not going to work there forever. What do you really want to do though? Mm. I had a lot of those. I worked at Godiva Chocolate. I don't know if you remember that. Oh my gosh. That sounds like a fantastic job. It was a great job. I loved it. And so many people said, but what do you really want to do? What do you really want to do? And so I think that those jobs are very, very interesting because one, I think we saw through the pandemic, what is actually essential to people is a lot of those jobs as well. But then the way that they are treated is that it's like this in-between stepping stone to whatever you want in the future. Amira, I think that if healthcare wasn't an issue for her, she would see the situation a lot differently. I think that she would see a lot more options available to her and say, okay, well, I think I want to do this full time. I'm going to find somebody else. I think that she would do things a lot differently if she was cared for in that way. But I think the pressure she puts on herself from healthcare, from her friends, also from Alex wanting her to be someone different, I think that she struggles a little bit. But I don't think that she's the only one. I had several jobs in my 20s that I would have been fine doing forever because they allowed me to write when I got home. But unfortunately, that's not how things work all the time. And if we're still thinking about what novels can do for us besides teaching us, they can sort of show us how the structures of our society and our having chosen to link healthcare to employment for whatever reason shapes our minds and our worldviews and our opportunities in ways that change the way we think. Yes, yes. So I think we are just about at our time here. So Kylie, thank you so much for being here. This was so fun and smart and interesting. Constance, this was lovely. You're obviously a really great reader. And so thank you for asking such thoughtful questions. Thank you so much, Constance. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back on Monday for a brand new episode. <laughs>